Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to McKnight Tonight. Where do I begin with tonight's guest? When I was just 15 years old, I would make my way to the Channel 7 studios in Epping to watch him host Saturday Morning Live. This wasn't just once or twice, I went every bloody week. He certainly did. <laughs> Years later, I would find myself becoming friends with John O'Coleman when I became his boss. Didn't he dine out on that one? Mm. That was when we hired him to present the advertorials for Studio 10. He is generous, for sure, he is absolutely mad, and he can be a major pain in the bum. But I absolutely love him. John O'Coleman, welcome to McNight Tonight. Thank you very much. Is my cab here yet? <laughs> You're done already? Yeah, that's it. I'm tired just from the intro. Well, you've actually uh, opened up your lovely house to me today for well, this yes. recording. Not so much a house, more of a home unit, but uh, it is, it's a great place. This is what, the place that we bought before the Sydney Olympics off the mm. plans at Rushcutters Bay in Sydney. Uh, and uh, it's lovely. It's big. It's not the American, the Australian Idol house that you once owned just no, until no. recently. The Australian Idol house has now been sold on to uh, some other fine Australian slash Chinese developers <laughs> <laughs> who are going to be turning it into ten townhouses. I think two story townhouses, mm. which uh, the neighbours will be thrilled about. But you know, I think it's uh, yeah. I'm sure you're scraping pennies together well, after that, you know, Jono. I just thought like, now's the time to cash up and now that get rid of the children. You know, Oscar's in Adelaide, Emily's in Germany. What do you do? Well, the kids are away, sell the house. Yeah, it's very smart. News.com.au did an article on you, Mm. and the headline was, Jonathan Coleman is probably the happiest man on telly, especially when doing infomercials. Would you agree with that? I think I'm pretty much the happiest man on telly. You know, full, stop. full stop. Because basically, whether I'm doing infomercials, advertorials, editorial, chatting, uh, interviewing people, whether it was TV or radio, I've been very lucky that I always go for the the light side. And you part, love it, don't you? Part of my brain just says, you know, there's so many boring interviews that take place right now around the world. And that's important for some people because if it's, you know, a world leader, maybe it should be a, an important interview about who's got their finger on the nuclear button. But that's not me. And, you know, what Dano and I did for years and what I've done for years on TV and radio is about entertainment. Well, you, you talk about world leaders. On the day Nelson Mandela died... Oh, my God. You started the Studio 10 that morning 
completely naked mm. with nothing but a Studio 10 logo covering your bits. And the poor floor manager, Katie, actually had a behind <laughs> shot. She, you walked in front of her and she got your full backside. Yeah. <laughs> and then Nelson Mandela died. I know. that was. I think it was a Friday, if I remember correctly. I don't remember what day of the week it was. And it was sort of like, hey, it's the kind of be nude at work day. <laughs> Didn't you get the memo, Jono? And uh, everyone else was closed and clothed in their normal clothing. And I basically said, oh, this is great. I grabbed the, one of those, you know, magnetic Studio yeah. 10 logos and covered up my uh, my bits with a, a sort of a Frisbee-sized thing. It's interesting you've never been afraid of the nudity. You did a lot of it on Studio I know, 10. I know. I think it, I think it was because I was always kind of um, egged on, as they say, by you. By who? By me. Very other producers Surely going, not. John. No, we need you dressed as <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Or no, mate, if I was ever reaching and desperate for something, I'd go, John O'Naked, that'll fix right. it. I'd love to get a cheap laugh. <laughs> uh, and, and it's funny because those sorts of things did get laughs, and I think that's what mm. made Studio 10 a unique thing, especially at that time. It's probably these days a little bit more kind of sedate and uh, a little bit more safe, um, which is a pity because in some ways yeah. Studio 10 now looks more similar to to the Today Show Extra or even Mornings with with Larry and Kylie. And I think the thing that the early days, without pissing in your pocket, as they say, the uh, beginning of Studio 10 was all about being different and doing things differently 100%. and covering stories that maybe the others wouldn't do or just having a, a, a bit of fun as well. Well, uh, I think you helped make a strong connection with the audience, if yeah. I'm to be honest. And And look, it's not to say that... You know, we certainly had run-ins at times because there were, you know, with such creative energy flowing around, we would disagree on stuff and there were always other considerations. But I think you absolutely helped make that connection with the audience and were part of the family and the love that viewers felt connected with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was the the old adage in advertising of the, you know, the USP, the unique selling proposition with Studio Uh, 10 was it was a different package from what 7 and 9 were, were, were sort of churning out so that's true and also you know you and your rapid mood swings so there was times when you would sort of go i'd be doing something which might be you know like something very funny and then you would go but you're you're wearing a yellow swatch (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to be wearing hang on are you now upset that i've got an attention to detail are you (laughs) (laughs) okay because you were about to go into an advertorial with a green swatch that's right but then people would write in saying Am I going crazy or was did Jono's hair change colours during that next advertorial or something? You know, when I first employed Jono, <laughs> the first thing I said to him was, Jono, so what we're going to do, we're going to have you doing live intros, right? So basically when we first see you, you're going to be live. You're going to walk out of frame and we're going to pick up on the taped advertorial. Yeah. So that way Seamless. It, it, it would be different, it would feel live, unique. And I said to you, you have to keep your hairstyle the same. <laughs> it cannot change. Okay. And then I'd come to work and it would go from brown to white. To and ginger. I'd be like, John, what have you done? He said, oh, put a little bit of lemon juice in it on the weekend in the pool, Rob. It's, it's just done that naturally. <laughs> And I was just like, Jono, stop! <laughs> and then I'm thinking, hold on a second, Rob. I'm just doing the advertorials. What about the actual show, the big chunks of show? With I, bet I gave that the same <laughs> due diligence. I looked yeah. after everything. Yeah. I remember when Jessica Rowe came in with pink hair once or a I few times. I don't think we should talk about oh, the pink hair. On. That we, is I think a big it's issue. all there. I think we've got to go for everything. This is a special podcast where nerds Well, the pink are, hair caused yeah. a huge divide because <laughs> Jess came to me one day and said, oh, I want to do pink hair. And I, and I thought... 
that'll get publicity. It's pink gate. You know, you know what my yeah, radar yeah, was yeah. like. Oh, that'll get a headline. Mm-hmm. And it did. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I got her to do is I got her to do it in secret. No one else knew. She actually didn't turn up on set until the opener was rolling. Yeah. And we queued it so that she would come out behind the host so even the hosts hadn't seen the pink hair. Anyway, we got some laughs. They had a discussion. It got on the Daily Mail, news.com.au. And then a rain of fire came down on me from the network. Why would you do this? Why would you let her do, dye her hair pink? And I was like, oh, God, it's a bit of fun Isn't on a morning it amazing, TV though, show. Rob, when you think about it, here we, we are talking about a morning TV show, a bit of fluff and bubbles yeah. and fun, where all over the world people are dying in horrible events. <laughs> and then what comes down from network headquarters is, and I had exactly the same thing when I was doing Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Really? Back in the 80s, I changed my hair or I got like spray on like stripes. But I, I'm guilty of this. Whatever you're about to say, if they had a go, I had a go at you about yeah, hair. Yeah, I'm yeah. such a hypocrite. But it's it's crazy when you think, you know, that was 1980. Now we're talking, you know, 2018, yeah. 2017. And the same things happen. It's like, you know, I did a TV show in England for a while, uh, various TV shows. The first one I was doing on satellite TV, one of the main comments on show one was, do you reckon the... Um, the coffee mugs are okay. Are those mugs too big? I'm going, hey, what about the show? Who cares about the stupid coffee? That was like seriously one of the comments was the executive producer or one of the you know people said, I'm not sure about the sofa. Well, you've got to take that that your, your performance was brilliant. Yeah, that's that's all you can going, take. That okay, is, yeah. Yes, that the pink hair certainly caused a rift between Jess and I because I, after the hell of fire, hell yeah. rain of fire I got from the network, I said no more pink hair yeah. and and. That really did cause issues. And then they us. would sneak back in from time. Yes, to time and then I'd have to pull her out. It really made. I was suspended issues. from Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Oh, that's what you were going to say. I didn't suspend anyone. No, no, I know. But that was the thing that Simon used to fly up into a rage and go, "Jono's suspended until his hair goes back to what it says <laughs> in the contract." And I'm going, "This is kids' TV. What are we talking about?" <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, talking about the happy end, this is going to happen all through this interview. We're going to get off track so many times. That's so good. It's so going to be a two-part interview. Um, we were talking about you being the happiest man in television, and you actually spoke about that on the show back in 2014 when this article came out. Let's have a listen to what you said. Jono, what is your key to happiness? Oh. Medication. No. <laughs> my medication comes in a bottle. I have it most evenings. But I just think you're just going to have a good positive outlook on things. There's, there's so much bad news. You can switch the TV or the radio and you get lots of bad news. I think if you come in and have a fantastic audience every day, working with you guys, it's just oh. good fun and I'm happy to be alive. Going for cheap applause then. That is you to a T. It's that sort of turning some serious comment mm. and ending it on a crescendo of fun and, you know... You getting, gave me a good out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's what I learned from radio, I think, as well, is, like, actually have some sort of place where in your brain it goes, stop talking now. <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting point, that you've got to look for those moments where you can move on, and it's not about timings because, you know, uh, you might have a hot tick you might have a hot topic segment due to go for three minutes or three minutes 30. But if you've got that perfect out, you've got to go, that's it. Don't, there's nothing more to say on the subject. Mm. You've given us a good out. Let's move on. Yeah. And, and that's key, knowing the craft that well to be able to do that. I know? think for being in radio and TV for so long, people like Bert Newton can do it. People yeah. like David Letterman and, and, you know, all those people that are kind of heroes of the, of the art, whether it be radio or television. Uh, and I think that's one of the 
you know, one of the things that you said back in the in the early days and from day one was Sarah Harris is great. She's the bus driver. The bus driver. And she's going, right, that's fantastic. Let's leave that there. After the break, we'll do blah, blah, blah. Or let's leave it there. I've got another hot topic here for you. And uh, the relationship she has with the line producer, which I was doing for most of the run of my time there and yeah. whoever's in it now, it's a symbiotic relationship. You've got to trust each other. You've got to be able to talk in her ear while she's talking. You've got to be able to give guidance. She's got to know, no, I'm not going to go with that or hopefully most of the time she does but when she doesn't you've got to have the faith in her to know that she's doing this for a reason and and the relationship between especially if there's one specific driver in a place in a show like that you can't underestimate that relationship Mm. and how important it is and people watching at home don't realize that there's that much going on in the background they don't realize that uh tv presenters and to a degree when i was doing stuff on the bbc on radio uh, they would talk to you in your earphones. Mm-hmm. So you're wearing cans and they're saying, um, we've got uh, the, you know, the Lord Mayor of London standing by. You're going to have to t- finish That's this it. up and then go to Ken Livingston standing by. So it's that thing of being a, a smart enough presenter, whether it be on TV or radio, to take the hint and they're helping you. But, it, you know, like we, we've said in the past, it's like, to a TV viewer, they're seeing like a swan on the top of the water. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And underneath it, there's people paddling wildly. But also the other side of that argument is sometimes it's great on TV shows to show people behind the scenes. I absolutely agree I with that. You when do. you take them behind the <laughs> scenes, they love it. And I love exp- I love exposing the fourth wall. Yeah, that, I think that's really great because in all those movies that I sort of grew up watching or even on TV shows where they, they talk to the camera and go, do you think I should do that? What do you reckon? And, you know, and even... Even yep. like the monkeys or the yep. monkeys TV show, they used to talk to the camera sometimes. And even like the Beatles on Hard Day's Night, they would like, I go, oh, that's so cool. They're kind of talking to us, the audience. And I think that is very important. What do you love about showbiz? Um, I love the, the, the I guess, the, the simpleness of it, well, especially with radio. Uh, is that you can get on the radio with a bunch of CDs or records and talk to someone. And but your love goes deeper than that. Just You get a buzz out of just being on air, don't you? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that even when I was in advertising before Simon Townsend's One before Kids TV, before doing radio shows, when I was working in advertising, it was that buzz of going into a recording studio and producing, you know, voice talent and Kev Goldsby and, and you know, um, Jackie Weaver and Ross Higgins and, like, Keith Scott and legendary people like that. And then going, well, can we try it like this where you go, I want to know more. I should know that because I'm the voiceover guy. So, I mean, you know, it's that it's that thing of like that was my first foray into show business as being an advertising copywriter mm. and producer. But even before that, playing in a band as the keyboard player and, you know, doing those kind of like, okay, folks, we're going to do this and happy birthday to the birthday girl, Kerry. And I think it's that sort of ham quality about some people who love, you, you know. You certainly are a ham. Yeah, There's yeah, no doubt yeah. about that. That's right. TV's handsome as ham. <laughs> <laughs> but you do you get an excitement by being on air and and especially if you're in front of an audience is there anywhere you won't go for a laugh uh yeah i've never really done jokes about uh princess diana's death or you know 9-11 and things like that sure but that's that's not really what i'd expect from you as a performer no, anyway i mean you'll get your clothes off you'll yeah um your humor is more self deprecating 
Thank you. <laughs> Let me finish that point. Yeah. But I always say that like self-deprecation is something you, you would see on an advertorial. It's like, and I just rub the dead skin, skins. <laughs> I just rub the dead skin cells off here. And we call that self-deprecation. Um, but it's, it is, it's that thing about put down humor on yourself. I think that I learned that from kids TV. You can make any sort of joke if you're kind of including yourself in the joke. Um, yes. And I think that with, you know, Abbott and Costello and all the great comedians that we've seen over the years, like Morecambe and Wise and just double acts like that, one of them is the straight guy, one of them's the funny guy. And, it, and, and sometimes both of them, you think of the funny guy or one of them mm. becomes the straight guy. And I think that is always about, you know, um, even Laurel and Hardy. It was always like the kind of, okay, I'll do it. This is another fine mess you've got me yeah. into. So I think it's all about that not taking yourself too seriously thing. And I think that a lot of people can identify with that, whether it's on the TV or on the radio, because in everyone's workplace, there's the office clown mm. and there's the office person. It's, oh, there's Helen. We feel a bit sad for Helen. Let's go and have a bit of a chat with her. It's, it's you know, I think it plays out in people's workplaces and even in family groups. There's always... Dad and Steve and Uncle Bob, who's a bit sort of slow and the uptake, you know. That's that's actually a fascinating analogy. I think you're right on the money. Yeah, I think you I were too. our lovable dad. Yeah, yeah, it was like lovable older brother, <laughs> <laughs> lovable Uncle John, or creepy uncle. Maybe <laughs> that's I don't right. know. That's what Sarah Harris was just <laughs> You know, <clears throat> I guess I have to apologise to you, John. I probably for about a thousand things, but yeah, um, probably mostly for. Appearing in what was described as the most cringeworthy segment on Australian television. Oh, my God. At least according to the Daily Mail. Do you remember when we had the runner-ups from The Bachelor on? And that was because the network would never give us the winners, of course. Yeah. So we had to do something. Because they went on the project. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we decided to do a gag with you. There were about four of them being interviewed by Sandra Sully that day. Oh, I think I can remember this. Yeah, but have a listen to what happened when we opened the curtains and revealed you half naked, lying on a bed of roses. Well, since, ladies, you didn't get the guy, we thought we shan't leave you disappointed. We'll give you the next best option. And that curtain's open and you're there, Jono. Going, hi, baby. (laughs) They don't know what to do. They're looking there shocked. Was there groaning in the audience? Ooh. Don't worry, girls. Love springs eternal. And you're you're motioning for them to come over. No one will. The only one that got up, Heather Maltman. How good is she? Yeah, Heather Maltman. She came over. I finally got a boyfriend. And I think I've got bigger boobs than you. Once again, perfect out. I think that's what you call Jono's cry for help. Rob, get me out of here. I think that's true. I mean, like it was, it was one of those things. I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. I'm kneeling on a bed in a pair of sort of jockey shorts, yes, uh, and I'm surrounded by rose petals. And there they were, as you said, all those girls that never got the guy, yeah. And it was like all of them are going career and what's going to happen. <laughs> and, what's... and and Heather, of course, the only one that went over has a career. Yeah. She's on radio. She's doing yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And I think right there you saw which one was the standout. Well, that's and she was the one that was a good sport. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that um, I learned from doing 
live radio and also Wonder World and live TV shows is that you get people to do things. And what Simon Townsend always said to me is you just say, thank you so much for being a great sport. Hey, listen, you're fantastic. Let's hear it for, for, for Steve or for Barry or, or Helen for being a great sport. And it's that kind of, it's a natural ending, but it also makes the person feel good about themselves. It's like, yeah, I am a good sport. It's great advice. Speaking of Simon and Wonderworld, mm. how'd you get that gig? Um, I was working at 2WS as the creative director writing ads with about three other people. So I was in charge. I was in charge of writing ads and doing voices with them and um, getting Graham Webb and, and various people out to do voiceovers out in the western suburbs, out Seven Hills. And um, I was talking, and even Alan, uh, who was that used to come out? Oh, there'd be all sorts of people would come out and do voiceovers because they would do a, a job lot. And, you know, mm-hmm. you get your Kev Goldsby's and Ross Higgins and John John Woods and actors would come out and do voiceovers for sort of St- Stan's Fruit Market at <laughs> Parramatta. Come on down. Um, and Graham Bond would, would come out and do stuff. And then Graham Bond and I started doing a radio show on 2WS in the old days when it was AM radio and it was from out of the West to WS. Um, mm-hmm. And then I met Graham Webb was saying, you know, that they're looking for, a, they're doing a kids' TV show on Channel 10 and they're looking for reporters. So you didn't go through that huge audition cattle call process? No, you... because that never really happened at the beginning. That it, was later. Yeah, it was, it was done as a pilot. Um, Simon Townsend had done a pilot for Channel 9 and they sort of ummed and ahed about what, what to do. And I think Greg Bepper, who was doing kids TV as well, had been in the pilot and then they showed it because when Channel 9 sort of sat on the fence and said, oh, we'll have, have to think about it, Channel 10 that whole announcement about C classification, each TV network in Australia needed to have a C classified Mm -hmm. show for kids between four and five every afternoon. There were certainly set hours that C programming had to happen. Yeah. And uh, 10 said, we need one of those. We'll take Wonderworld. (laughs) As easy as that. Yeah. And then instantly Wonderworld got the green light and that was when Simon had to then think about who the reporters were going to be and I did my screen test then with the Yarn Event's husband who was a cameraman. Oh, yes. Um, and um, that was one Saturday morning in Hyde Park in Sydney with a 16 mil camera shooting film and a hand mic and I was interviewing trees and talking to people <laughs> doing, doing vox pops. We had no permission or anything like that. And, uh, and then Simon and Alan Lowry, who was the, the producer, um, said, Simon wants you to be on the show. And uh, I was still working at 2WS and it was a 16-week contract, I think, or a 13-week yeah. contract. And I spoke to my bosses at 2WS and I said, look, I just think it's going to be great fun and it's a great opportunity. Uh, what happens, you know, what happens happens. Who knows? And they said, look, we're happy for you to do it. And if it all fails after 13 weeks or 16 weeks, I'm sure we'll have a job for you back here oh, at 2WS. Nice so it was fantastic. And that was in 1979, end of 79. And uh, I never really went back, but I always had a, a really good relationship with 2WS, which then became 101.7 WSFM. Yeah. And I went back there and worked there and Jono and Dano did drive time there and Fabulous. my generation was on. So, so, yeah, it was a bridge that I didn't burn. Fabulous, which can happen in this industry. <laughs> so when you hear this music, what do you think, Jono? Does, does it bring good memories? Oh, yes. Oh, look, that sounds like... 
Yeah, like that, a, it was filled with all these crazy scenes, cars crashing, balloons yeah, yeah. bursting. And, and yeah, that's right, and uh, motorcycles and yes. all the things that probably they wouldn't allow you to put on kids' TV now. <laughs> um, and also, I remember when they did these credits, um, all the sound effects, Simon made them re-edit it or add sound effects, so there's like... Boy, 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 yeah. And, and they're kind of very thing. prominent. Yes, yeah. But obviously, and it wasn't the first theme song, though. No. The, uh, they uh, made a bit of a mistake, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, it was very funny. The uh, the first Wonderworld, they had that one done. That was by John St. Peters, and mm. that was it became a sort of, came out as a record and every sort of, you know, it was like yeah. the, uh, but here all the sound effects are. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was but the very, first song was very, Afternoon Delight. first song was the Starline vo- uh, Starland Vocal Band which I think John Denver was involved with. He either wrote it or produced the record. And it was Afternoon Delight, Sky, Rockets, Rockets in, in Flight. And, and it, of course, became <laughs> almost the semi-non-theme of uh, Anchorman, the movie, uh, because uh, those guys all sang it a cappella in, in, in uh, Anchorman, which I thought was hilarious. But, yes. Yes, but Simon didn't realise it was a song about sex in the afternoon. No. And then uh, people at the record company... Uh, said no, it's not about that. Even the writer of the song said it's not about that. It's about is having, that right? Yeah, but I. But then, then everyone said it is about you know, <laughs> skyrockets and flight, afternoon delight. So basically, I think the first three months or six months or maybe six weeks. I can't. I don't know how long it lasted, but the uh, the ten network bosses at the time decided it wasn't a good idea to have. Skyrockets in flight, afternoon delight, <laughs> because mummy and daddy, or mummy and a you know door to door salesman, might be not watching Wonderworld. Door to door salesman. <laughs> they might have gone to a motel and watched the show. Who knows? But yeah, it suddenly got replaced by that theme, which was uh, the uh, Wonderworld theme, which went on till uh, till the show was. Sort of, mm. I think it even went to the Channel Nine. Yeah, version. I think it did. Yeah, it w- yeah. was used for that. It had to be. It was iconic. Yeah. When. Wonderworld started taking off, and it, it really did become uh, a, a hit big time. Well, because it was that was before MTV yes. and all those shows that ran music videos. We even had In Excess on the show. Yeah, In Excess, one of their, I think it may have actually been their first TV uh, Wasn't appearance. Wasn't it Simon Says or something? Simon Says, and they did this song, which was on an album, or they specially recorded it, and it was, Simon loved that, because he just thought, you know, this is new pop band, and they're doing a song And they had called, photos of Simon, Yeah, Simon, and there's actually, if you go onto the internet on YouTube, there's the clip. I think Hugh Piper did the story, and uh, it was like a music video, and that's when a lot of the cameramen yes. started saying, we should do, like, Wonderworld stories that basically encompass an in excess video. They did one with The Cure, I think. There was a lot of bands, like Mental as Anything, uh, and a lot of the Wonderworld crew, like cameramen and sound recorders and lighting guys and and, uh, reporters, like Adam Bowen, um, went on to direct some of those... um, come up hey there you with the sad face directed those music videos yeah that was adam Adam bowen who used to be a wonder world reporter so when the show took off Mm. and you became a star what was it like getting that kind of fame getting recognized on the street it was it was strange but unbelievably good fun because in those days to be a star on national tv but on a kids show Mm. it was sort of it was kind it was safe. of yeah, it was safe, and it wasn't like you were kind of on the Don Lane show or on you know Bert Newton or something. It was kind of you could get away with with all sorts of things on kids TV, and it was like a kids current affairs show because Simon had come out of Willisey and worked with mm. Mike Willisey a lot, and uh, I was always likened to you're sort of like.
like the Paul Macon of the show. Yeah, so Paul Macon was like the funny guy on Willacy and, and, and Hogan had been the funny guy on Willacy and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was kind of like I was seen as the, the fun reporter you'd send out on some, you know, featherless bird um, story or, <laughs> or like, you know, a hat shop or Johnson's overalls or somewhere where there'd be lots of funny music montages that the editors used to have fun with. Um, I have to say this, Jono. If there's anyone that typifies celebrity to me, mm. it's you. I mean this in a loving way. Mm. But you're a little bit out there. Yeah. You're a bit vague. Yeah. But luckily, you've got your wife, Margot, who keeps you in check. How important is she in your life? Oh, very important. Um, you know, it's that's why I haven't ever traded her in for another wife or <laughs> been, you know, tempted to sort of ruin that relationship because I met one. I met. I met um, what's her name again? I met <laughs> I met Margot during Wonderworld. So I met Margot at the second. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Birthday party for Wonderworld, which was at the uh, um, at um, Birkenhead Point, right? Um, and it was the second Wonder World birthday party. Morris Parker was there, mm-hmm. who now works on uh, on Studio Ten, mm-hmm. um, and it was where I met Margot. That was Margot and two of her friends from Skeggs, from the girls. She just finished Year Twelve. But things could have gone differently, couldn't they? Because you questioned your own sexuality. Well, I think everyone did in the sort of 70s and 80s. It was, it was, like, <laughs> it was, a, it was that time. It, was, it depended was how dark the room was and what you'd been <laughs> drinking, I think. I sort of like, you know, I was always accused of being a bit gay or a bit sort of, you know, a lot of my friends were gay and worked in the fashion industry and music and producing this and producing that. So I think, you know, I never really... So, I, and when you're accused of it and when you're around of it, around it, do you sort of assume, well, maybe I am and I haven't realised? I think I went through the stage in my life when I thought, oh, my God, do I, do I, am I bisexual? Am I, mm-hmm. am I homosexual? Am I straight? And I think that being a classic artist, musician, comedian, you know, look at the number of people in the world. Well, like, you don't live in the real world. No, that's right. You, you really don't. But look, you know, people, you're on Jono time. But, yeah. You're on a Jono planet. But that's where all the, you know, the people like uh, Eddie Izzard and Stephen yeah. Fry and Peter Sellers to a degree and all those people I've met over the years, like, you know, um, members of Mon- the Monty Python guys, Eric Idle, they're all on showbiz time and yeah. they're on planet showbiz. And also I, we used to say even on um, on the Virgin Breakfast show, they'd say, oh, Jono, don't worry, he's a bit lost in showbiz. And we'd always say that. <laughs> where's, where's Pamela Anderson? Oh, she's, she's just getting her showbiz makeup on. Has anyone told her it's radio? And it's like, so I think most people in the in the media, if you're successful you're given the leeway to be a little bit doolally, a mm. bit sort of lost in showbiz, a little bit gay, a little bit happy. Yeah. I mean, like the chatty man and, you know, Julian Clary, another one of my great bookings for Studio 10. Uh. <laughs> well, it's interesting, and, and I was going to talk about I this later. <laughs> but um, 
you know, after your fame in the UK, because you became so well known, mm. and we're jumping years, ahead of sixteen years of slogging. Yeah, but it paid off because every time we wanted a guest from the UK, mm. we used and abused your name and you as a contact and person s- to make contact. Sometimes they knew me, not all the time, but like people like no anyone from the UK when they came into Studio <laughs> Ten and they saw ah, you on there, Jono. Jono. Yeah. We always got that, and of course we had an infamous incident where you helped us get Julian Clary across the line. Yeah. He came in and it was one day you weren't there and it fell apart. And uh, I actually was interviewed about my best and worst guests and Julian Clary wasn't named... But he was one of our worst guests. Only because he gets he's naturally shy. It's so weird for someone. He's- I just don't think he was briefed on what the show was. It didn't click at all. It, it would because we were a bit of everything. We had topics that were serious, then we had lighter moments. Mm. But in the first segment, he's getting these topics at him and he you could see he just looked like, Oh my god. And he actually on air said, I think it's time for a break. And Sarah says we got another 20 minutes to go <laughs> before the first I break. Think, I think, and I think in some ways the mistake we made in those early days was that fifth panellist was there from from the first moment of the show and sometimes they were instantly fantastic like your Vince Sorrentis or your those kind of people who instantly got it. Yeah. And then someone like Julian Clary, he's been on so many shows where it's kind of now you're going to be on for five minutes. That's it. I, I just <laughs> I think a better break. It, it, that, that disaster taught me a lot. When we had international guests, <clears throat> when we had international guests, yeah. go and talk to them, brief them on exactly. the show, which was always hard because, you know, we were prepping the show and we were always behind the eight ball. Yeah. But it became important that they felt comfortable with what was going Especially on. Especially if they're on camera, yeah. literally for two to three hours, yeah. and they're kind of going, I thought this was just like a 15-minute thing. Because <laughs> I remember at one stage I was at the at the gym. It was one of the days where I was sort of took the morning off because I was doing ads in the afternoon. Um, and I was watching it and I'm going, oh, my God. And it, and it was sort of like he was saying, you know, where's Jono? Where's my mate Jono? And I yeah. just knew that he was kind of going, I think I think I should. Is that it for me? Can I go now? There's only been two occasions during that show where I almost pulled guests off halfway through. He was one of them. And because you just wanted to put him out of his misery. Sandy Goodman, ostentatious. Yeah, that was the other one. That was one. the other one I warned you about. And, and my, uh, I can remember saying, mark my words, I don't think it's a good idea. He's a lovely guy. But A, the ostentatious character is so kind of repugnant to a lot of people or at least disturbing. Uh, and Sandy... The real person. Then why did I do it? I don't know. I, you said, no, I think it's going to be great. It's no, gonna... no, surely I not. I can't remember. I just remember coming into your office and going, Or did well, you say this in hindsight? No, it was that morning. Or I think, Oh, I can't pull a guest off no, that was, morning, I think, I think it was before the, you were going, oh, no, I think he'd be great. It was, it was a couple of days before. I don't remember having a big belief in him. I think he was just booked. I think he was just one of those names that and was And you booked. said it's going to be great, and if it doesn't work, we'll just get, in, get, it, you know, get him out. But he's going to do some as ostentatious and some as himself. I don't remember that. What I do remember is him <laughs> turning to the audience that wasn't laughing. Nothing he was saying was getting yep. a laugh. And he looked at them and said, why aren't you laughing? This is funny. And I think when the moment a comedian turns on the yeah, audience like yeah, that, yeah. you've got a big problem because he lost them. They He had lost them for the rest of the show. But also, as a comedian, uh, isn't it your sort of job to win them over? If what you're doing isn't working, try something else. And the worst thing for me was that he, I was standing there in the studio and he kept ref- referring to me and making comments <laughs> to me. Jono, what do I do now? Yeah. I'm going, oh, it, was, oh. it was terrible. It was the, honestly, that was, 
Um, <laughs> when we we started at eight thirty, by nine thirty, I was seriously in the control room thinking, "What do I do? Do I mm. pull him off? Do I just call it a day?" And I actually went out to him because he was struggling, and and I, I think he would have been relieved if I pulled him off. Mm. Um, and but I think he thinks he was pulled off actually because I had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. I don't. Think and he I said that was up. the only show I've ever been on when they said you can go now. <laughs> And I didn't remember either. Oh, my God. Did so I pull him off? I think he was told that he, if he wanted to go, that was great and thanks very much for dropping by and, you know, we, that, that's all we ever planned was just that first hour or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I saw I ran into him at uh, Double Bay in Sydney uh, oh, and I foolishly said, hey, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> and for the next hour I, had, uh, the, I was at the 21 Cafe and he was just there making a booking. And I, and I said, shall I do this? But better half of me says, don't call out to him. And then the other half said, call out to him. And I go, hey, hi, hi Sandy. And he went, hey, Jono. And then he sat down. And then about 15 minutes into the chat, it was like, remember that time I came on Studio 10? And I'm going, oh, God. They were such heady days. It's hard to know what happened, really. I, I, I don't remember pulling him off air. Well, he does. <laughs> I bet. But I don't mean... Because everything in me would have wanted to go, it doesn't make sense to the show. That's not the format. The viewers know if we pull him off air, that would be a huge thing. I don't know how I... There must have been a way I I phased him out. I think there was an outside segment or something. And then when we came back, Sandy had gone. That's what I seem to remember in my mind because I was in... That would make sense. And especially after we got through Hot Topics, it's more featurey segments. So you can sort of, you can hide elements like that. It was, you could feel sphincters in the studio. You could feel cringing (laughs) and uncomfortableness in chairs and seats. And one of them was me kind of going, oh my God. And I remember afterwards saying, so Rob... Do you remember when I said, this is a bad idea? No, not that you'd ever say, I told you so, Jono, but thank you for that. (laughs) I had to. I just kind of went, oh, my God. I remember in the nicest possible way with Sandy um, because we had him on the radio a few times. I had him on the radio on BBC in London. I can't believe I didn't pay. I, I can't believe I didn't listen to you. Dano and I used to say, little small list of guests we should never really have on the radio again <laughs> and even pre-recorded and it was like you know one of the one of the hardest people to interview was him and uh dano and i when we were out somewhere and you'd say look over there there's sandy sandy gutman ostentatious you go oh just keep your head down and keep walking <laughs> <laughs> no offense your, your partnership with dano mm. in this country it was a bit of a making Jono and dano became household names how did that start and what are the benefits of that relationship? Well, it's always great to have someone to bounce off. It was you, Triple J, wasn't it? Yeah, you... Triple J. I was doing Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. So it was like 1981. Um, I had um, approached my manager at the time, Michael Lynch, uh, about um, doing some radio. I wanted to get back into doing some radio because in Wonderworld, whenever we travelled around and did stories, you'd go into the local radio station they go, oh, great, John O'Coleman's going to come on the radio. And that was one of the things that... Uh, we know Simon and I sort of worked out that all those local radio stations in, you know, Ballarat and Bendigo or Bunbury or Perth or whatever. So that all worked out. And then I said to my manager, I said, I'd love to do like a regular radio show, maybe a Saturday night thing or a weekend thing. 
because I was shooting Wonderworld most days or every day. Um, so we set up a meeting with Rod Muir at Triple M in Sydney, which was one of the first FM radio stations. And um, something happened and I was late for the meeting or he was late for the meeting and we got there and they said, oh, no, Rod's already gone. And I went, oh, right. And he said, well, let's lock it in for next week. But in the meantime, we went and had a meeting with Chris Winter and uh, Marius Webb at Triple J the next day. And they said, right. Fantastic. Do you want to do something Saturday night? Why don't we just <laughs> What? Why don't we just suck it and see? You go on the radio Saturday night. Do you want do you need a panel operator? Can you panel operate? I said, Well, I don't know. I can do the old ones that like we had at two WS, but I might need a panel operator. And they said, That's all right, we'll get Ian Rogerson, who's doing the show just before you. We'll get him to stay on for an extra hour or so and he can panel operate. And uh, and that's when I first met uh, Ian Dano. Uh, Rogerson, because his nickname was Dano, because he used to watch Hawaii Five O all the time. Right, I always wondered whether he made him his name Dano to go with Jono and Dano. No, but... it was uh, Stuart Cranny, who was also on the air, used to call him Dano, and you know, right. book, book him Dano because of Hawaii. How perfectly 5-0. was that? And then uh, we did that first Saturday night, and about link number two, when I'm sort of going, yeah, it's me, it's Jono Coleman here. I think I was calling myself Jonathan Coleman, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I said, so. Uh, I've got so to- you ran out of material by segment two. Maybe and went, segment two. I'm going to talk to you. Yeah, I said, what do you think, Dano? How do you think the show's going so far? <laughs> that was about it. <laughs> when you guys um, – actually, before I do that, mm. what does Dano bring to the partnership that you don't? What's his strength? Well, in those early days, he was the one who used to know how to use the equipment. Yeah, but it's more than that. Well, it was more than that. But, I mean, on that first night, it was Mm. kind of like, this is the guy that's keeping me on the air (laughs) and knows what the next track is and all that kind of thing. Uh, And then, So from a performance view? From a performance view, it's light and shade. It's like a game of of tennis. You know, it's backwards and forwards. It's like, you know, what you and I are doing now. Mm. We're having a conversation. You're, you know, you're dropping in something or another question. And I think that's the art of a good... Uh, combination, the chemistry of doing radio or TV together is someone says something and the other one goes, well, hold on a second. I don't know if I agree with that. And that's what the the magic of the Jono and Dano thing was and that's why things like Hamish and Andy work so well because they're mates and they're, it's like having a conversation. When you moved to Triple M, you became number one. Mm. Did you feel unstoppable? Oh, I think our egos got a bit mm. healthy. That was like 1984 uh, and there were like, you know, heavily ego-filled times and a lot of people were using cocaine and going, all right, guys, there's a great thing that Tony was Martin... Was it all around? Oh, yeah. Tony Martin, um, who's a very funny guy, mm. he was at Triple M during those days or working with the D Generation or... Um, and he was he does this character and you've probably heard it. It's on the, on the internet. I think it's called sort of... Um, Steve Sizzle or, or Tony Sizzle. It's this kind of uh, radio uh, kind of uh, they bring in the sort of uh, the outside radio consultant and he's got that clicking fingers. It's like, right. okay, guys, we need, we need a chick. Let's get a girl to do to, uh, the sports chick and then you get her and she does a bit of that and then it's like uh, – and it's just sizzles and it's sexy. And uh, and I think that's what the 80s were like in radio and TV. Everyone had a leather jacket and, uh, and you know, that's when uh, a lot of people were going <laughs> – <laughs> and and uh, yeah. you know, weren't, they were playing with their food a lot. I noticed that where I was too a too much of a cheapskate to buy cocaine, <laughs> <laughs> and b I enjoyed my food too much. I thought, what a waste of time! They order these great meals, 
they get they get some coke and then they just play with their food and then the food gets left and then they go right let's get some more cocaine is that how people keep skinny when they're on the on I think cocaine? So. yeah that makes sense yeah yeah you then went to Channel 7 and did a few shows like Have a Go and Late Night with Jono and Dano. I watched the promo for that yesterday. Oh, is that the one? You're um, running through the corridors of Channel 7. And yeah. it, it made me think of what television stations were like back then because they were essentially television cities. You yeah. know, you had um, TCN 9 in Willoughby. You had Channel 7 in Epping. Uh, you had... Uh, GTV9 in Richmond. Yeah, exactly. You had HSV in, uh, in Melbourne as well. But each place was its own city own cafeteria you know like uh, there were so many people working at television stations and and i worked at channel 7 for quite a few yeah. years and i loved walking around that building the photos everywhere of all the productions that had taken place you're sad like me though i am it's so funny i used to get that that's the smell of a tv station yes you know even when i first went to radio stations i used to get all excited because you know going into 2sm in sydney or 3xy in melbourne or you know that the thing of doing wonder world I had that opportunity to go to all those regional radio stations or go to the one in Brisbane or go to go to the one and then suddenly you get this invite to come to the Christmas telethon <laughs> in Adelaide. Me and Ricky May and Denise Drysdale and Ernie Siegley and you would have loved it. Ian Terps. It was like, okay, Jono, uh, SAS Ten, you're going to be there. They love you in the phone room, and then you and Ricky are going to go out in the streets and do some fundraising out in Hindley Street or you know <laughs> Rundle Mall. So I mean, that's where you get that opportunity to do live TV. In a, in, a, in a city like Adelaide or mm. I, was, I did lots of uh, the telethon in Perth when I was at seven and then I did the Channel 9 one, a peelathon. Um, it, it was a great opportunity. But like as you say, you would go to Channel 10 Adelaide or I went to the ABC in Adelaide the other a couple of months ago to see our son who works at the, at the ABC in Adelaide and it was similar. Uh, even though it's been stripped back a lot, there was like, you know, the record library and the sound library and the, the news is done over there and then there's mm. voiceover booth. There's a wardrobe department. When I went to GTV Channel 9 in Melbourne to do things like the Burt Newton show or Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. In that go, big studio yeah, nine. Go and see Maureen and she'll sort you out with a with a soldier's outfit or whatever. And it was, you know, elements of the BBC were like that and still are like that, you know. And even doing stuff with Ant and Deck, um, I'm so lucky that I've experienced that side of it as well. But I think that experience of doing... Wonderworld and doing all those dress-up things and going to all those telethons in far the far reaches of Australia was just an amazing uh, learning playground. Yeah, the telethons back in the day were just something very special, and there's still a couple happening now. But it's... I've seen photographs of me at various telethons with uh, with Gordon Elliott and um, Denise <laughs> and, and Colleen Hewitt. And Michael Jackson ended up at the yeah. Perth one. Yeah, that was a huge coup when they had Michael Jackson. That was the one I wasn't at. You know was... why he was there, don't you? Because was he doing some deal? It was a deal. So I think... If, was it when Skase held Channel Seven? Owned Channel Seven? It might have been Alan Bond. Uh, wasn't no, it the Channel Bond Nine? Was it the Channel Nine one? I can't remember. It was definitely Perth. Uh, whoever owned 
whoever owned uh, the network at that stage had the rights to the Beatles song, I think, the Beatles catalogue, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, maybe. Cause, and cause... Jackson wanted it. And part of the deal was that Jackson had to come and appear in the telethon, as well as all the money, yeah. but had to appear at the telethon. It was Northern Songs, ATV Northern Songs. And I think it, Michael Jackson bought that, which is now Michael Michael then got bought back after Michael Jackson died. Yep. Paul McCartney got the rights back and bought it all back on behalf of the Beatles. But, yeah, it was. It was to do with <laughs> that deal with uh, Michael Jackson going, okay, I'll go to Perth <laughs> and I'll appear on their pillathon or telethon. <laughs> because, you know, they had those classic ones that um, um, Jerry Lewis used to do that giant yes. uh, telethon in, in Los Angeles that everybody would be on, like mm. Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and, you know, presidents and, you know. so Well, Dean Martin, that's where they reunited that's for the right. first time in – Years and years and years. It was a long time between yeah, drinks. That's right. Two. He said, "How you been? What have you been doing?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, it was incredible. The you know, I met Stevie Wonder at one of those telethons, and um, Victor Borgia was at the Adelaide one one year, and then the next morning we were on Good Morning Australia together with Kerry Ann and Gordon Elliott, and you know, it was just kind of like at Amazing. the time it just seemed. Do you want to come on the thing tomorrow? You're coming on the thing tomorrow morning, and blah blah blah. blah. And uh, it was it was an easier time these days. It's like, well, we'll we'll think about it, and we might get you to come in at some stage. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, now it's different. When you guys started hosting uh, Saturday Morning Live, when that launched, that was when I first met you. And by met, I was in the audience looking at you. Yeah. Um, and I started going every week to watch that show. Um, I've got to say, it was a show that taught me so much about television. Watching the way it was done, the way sets were used in multi, in, in different purposes. I'd even grab the rundowns and take mm. them home. Was that an exciting time for you? Oh, yeah, it was fantastic because uh, Dano and I had been working together by that stage, 1988, for quite a long time. Mm. So we did Late Night with John and Dano for seven. We did, um, you know, other shows. And then we hosted Sounds for Donnie Sutherland a few times. So Sounds was the show that became Saturday Morning Live, basically, yep. because Donnie had done Sounds for ages and ages, mm. and that was also something that Graham Webb was involved with in the old days. Graham Webb was with the first host of Sounds Incorporated or whatever it was called then. Then Donnie Sutherland did Sounds, which was a three-hour live show out at Channel 7, Epping, but it went all over Australia. Uh, and then Dano and I, they said, well, look, Donnie's probably going to give up doing it. We always going, you sure? And they said, yeah, well, he's, you know, he wants to do other things and he was involved with, you know, horse racing stuff and the Sky Racing Channel. Uh, and so we were given what was Sounds, which became Saturday Morning Live with, with Jono and Dano. Uh, and it was 1988, and it was, was just... Was that Studio D it was in? Oh God, I can't remember. It was just we, that... It became the Home and Away studio years later. Yeah. Well, there was a studio which we had, then we went into a smaller studio, then they gave us the bigger one uh, because we were doing Have a Go and Saturday Morning Live, which all had live audiences. Mm. And it was, you know, the people like yourself who used to come as regulars and the kids from Epping and from, you know, um, they jump jump on the train and walk up the hill to... Uh, yeah, I, we, I used to drag people out from Campbelltown. We'd catch the train from Campbelltown to Strathfield, change, go to Epping, walk up that bloody big hill yeah. and wait outside the gates for an hour. Until they let us in. Yeah, well, we did the show sometimes from HSV in Channel 7 mm. and then we'd go out and, you know, do... Everyone said, when are you going to come and do Saturday Morning Live from, from Brisbane or and whatever? And that's always exciting when you take yeah. the show on the road. We did um, uh, Expo 88 from Brisbane and that night 
we uh, the Saturday on the Sunday night, Dano and I had to introduce Farnham live around Australia on the Seven Network, and that was during this, the Christopher Scase era. So Ed, you know, Ed St John was the was, was the that the live Farnham event that yeah. beamed around the country? Yeah, where they also shot scenes from Home and Away. Yes, so it was the whole. Channel 7. Like everyone was involved. Yeah. Home and Away was shooting yeah. in one corner. Yeah. It was beaming live. It was amazing. It was very exciting. And uh, Dano and I were lucky enough to be part of that whole, you know, Saturday morning live, three hours live mm. from Expo, from the site of Expo 88. And then don't forget Sunday night, you're introducing Farnham live around Australia. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going, all right, let me change my underpants first. <laughs> Saturday morning live was the number one show. Dominated the time slot. And then they changed it. You guys were essentially sidelined mm. and ratings dropped. Was that an anxious time? It was. You know, in hindsight, I guess it was sort of like uh, we thought, well, why they – they wanted to add more people from home and away yep. and make Emily it like – Emily Simons. Yeah, and Emily Simons and I can't remember. And, and Alex Paps was involved sometimes. But, but I could – Was it Brett someone? The other guy yeah. from Home and Away, young, good-looking dude. Yeah, I can't remember the names of them all mm. now. They're all lovely. Good, you know, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. They were they were given this opportunity to be on Saturday Morning Live, and even think people from Hey Dad. You know, there was a there was a part we Dano and I got to be on Home and Away playing Jono and Dano when uh, they did a thing where the kids from Summer Bay did a record, and it turned out that they hadn't sung on the record themselves, and there was this big Millie Vanilli type scandal in the storyline. Ah, uh, yes, I remember that. And then there was another thing where we did uh, Hey Dad and Nudge came on uh, Saturday Morning Live and it was like... A, so I can understand that sort of Channel 9-style co-promotion. Yeah. And it made sense. But it was pushing you out. Well, in a lot of ways, they suddenly said, we want to get, like, the the Castanet Club and Mikey Robbins and people like that on to do comedy sketches. Uh, and that was partly Chris Noble was involved and I could understand them wanting to do that and I'm saying, well... Maybe, but we're also doing a radio show and you want to do sort of scripted comedy, whereas this is a music show. I think It wasn't Saturday Morning Live. No, not really. So, I mean, it kind of... But, it, but having said that, Saturday Morning Live was always fun. It yeah. was vibrant. Yeah. It, you know, you weren't wanting... The show was great. And it was live, live. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, seat of the pants live. And I was doing live voiceovers with a with a radio mic or with a microphone at the side of the stage, similarly to what we did on Studio 10. Because when we first started the Studio 10 conversations, it was like, you know, Adam Boland and yourself were saying, you know, want to do live ads. Yeah. Like in the Graham that, that Kennedy. Was a, that yeah. was something we wanted to do. Couldn't make it happen. I mean, we did some live ads, but never in the way we, we had wanted Invi- to yeah, try. Yeah, we envisaged doing those kind of fun ads with like you'd see you know graham and you'd see don and bert doing ads and um, there just isn't an appetite from the clients they're too they're too worried that their bowling ball is going to look bad or (laughs) that that, you know yeah that it won't suck up properly (laughs) the microwave won't work or whatever so there's still some ads that we do live but yeah it's a bit sad when you think that I i can understand it but in those days when Graham and and Don and Bert were doing live ads. People would say, "I want to get some of that shoe polish," or "I'm going to get one of those." Yeah, they'd still buy the products. Yeah, because they go, "I want to see what it's like in that one." You know, there's the classic piece of footage that you've seen a million times, uh, and people listening to this would have seen where the dog uh, lifts his leg on the side of the camera and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I learned every time we had animals in the studio, I would say, "Give them water, give them yeah, water." Yeah, you know, yeah. let's have an accident. Yeah, and we we did have a dog poo on set once. Yes, that's been shown about three million. <laughs> 
million times. I know the girl who was looking after the dog. She became one of my regulars on 2UE, Laura, Laura V, the right. uh, the dog sort of behavioralist. And she goes, I'll never get over my dog doing a crap in oh, front we, of Ida I was Butchers. so happy. I think I might have got up out of my chair and cheered. Woo-hoo! <laughs> um, when you were axed from Saturday Morning Live, were you bitter? You had a show was wor- that was working until they changed it. I think um, my vague memory of it was at the end of one year, they said, we're gonna, we can't afford to do with the live audience anymore. We're going to move you into a smaller studio and it'll be basically just introing and outroing. It became less Saturday Morning Live with John Ondano and what they envisaged was uh, video smash hits. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's when I, and I think Dano also just said, no, that's not the show that we signed up to do. And I think that's when we decided at the end of uh, 1989, going into 1990, I said, well, we don't want to do it anymore because I'm about to get married. We got married, Margot and I, middle of 1990. And that's when the job offer came in to go and work in England. So it came as a sort of natural progression. Uh, and uh, and I spoke to Dano and he was sort of completely cool about it because he was going, you know, it's not the show that we want to do. We want to do a live kind of radio show on the TV, which was what that two years of Saturday Morning Live was, mm. 88 and 89. And then to go from 1990 just basically introing videos, not the same. I think we need to do a part two on this because this is a fascinating chat and there is so much more to talk about. There's the UK, there's everything that happened over there, the feud with Chris Evans. Yeah. You know, um, we've got Studio 10 to talk about and, of course, your health scare and what you've been going through recently. So yeah. let's come back next week for more of McKnight Tonight. Fun, insightful interviews from a Washington producer with nothing to lose. Good night tonight. Good night tonight. Good night tonight. It's good night from good night tonight. Is the cab here yet? <laughs> hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price, and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.